We are starting a new series today, and um, I'm planning on this series uh, covering some countercultural topics um, to help you develop a biblical world view. So the name of this message series is Hot Topics. And we're going to talk about various things, some of which I won't mention today with children in the room. But we're going to talk about having an actual worldview of being biblically based and centered. Now, a worldview is just what it sounds like in simple terms. It's how you view the world. But let me give you a more detailed definition, and we'll have it on the screen for you. The more detailed definition is this. A world view is a collection of attitudes, values, stories, and expectations about the world around us, which inform our every thought and every action. I want you to think about that definition for just a moment. How many of you have ever experienced another culture outside of America? Raise your hand. Whether you went on vacation, a cruise, a missions trip, you're from there. Okay, you've experienced something. Now, there are different cultures all around the world, and the way that they behave is much different than our culture. It may be uh, common for them to slurp their drink or their noodles, and that's okay. It may be okay for them to burp at the table, and it's okay there. It may be okay to do lots of different things. Uh, some cultures, they bow towards each other as a greeting instead of hugging. You only hug your family members, whatever the case may be. There are differences around the world, and we might think that they're automatic, like it's just because of that, but really and truly, it is their worldview that is shaping their every thought and their every action. It's the stories they hear. It's the values they grow up with. Even in America, in the southern uh, area, the southern region of the United States, we would say that we are really good with something called hos hospitality. Okay, southern hospitality is a thing. You look someone in the eye in New Jersey or New York and ask them how they're doing or would they like to come inside and visit for a while and you might not get the same response as you do down here, okay? There are differences even in the same country, even across the street from us. But the worldview that you have is important. And here's the thing. You can change your worldview. That's what this series is all about. Because just because you're 30, 40, 50, 60, and you've already developed your thoughts about this world through the lens of the Bible, you can still expand and expound upon that. So a worldview is how culture works out in individual practice. So let me give you this example uh, I was thinking about this week. When you encounter a situation and you think you, you see something happen and you go, ooh, that's just wrong. Do you know what's happening? Your worldview is affecting your thought in that very moment. Because your mama taught you not to do whatever you see them doing. And you think, goodness gracious, why are they doing that? 
The same thing is true of the opposite side. If you see something that happens and you say, yeah, you know what? That's the right thing to do. I'm so glad he helped that older lady across the street in the middle of traffic. You think, yeah, man, next time I see that happen, I'm going to do that. It's your worldview that's influencing you. So if you got it, say, got it. You all have a worldview, and I'm going to help you have a better version of it. We have a natural tendency to think that what we believe is normal. Um, Our beliefs and our worldviews are shaped by the things that we allow ourselves to be influenced by. And this is really important. I've already given you a little bit of example, but your family, your upbringing, the culture, your faith... Miss Erin, her testimony, she said that her 14-year-old self was influenced by her friends. You can be influenced by leaders in your life, the surroundings, and even the entertainment that you take in. That's why we tell kids all the time, no, that's not really appropriate for your age. No, mommy and daddy don't really want you watching that. No, we really shouldn't listen to that kind of music. It's not because necessarily, and this has been said in generations before mine, that music is the music of the devil. (laughs) Give me some of that old time rock and roll every once in a while. I like it, but here's the deal. You have to be careful with what you ingest. Because it starts to shape you and impact your worldview. And worldviews are complex. You may, you may look at something and not understand why you're reacting that way. But they develop gradually and over repetitive process or repetitive exposure and real world application and practice. Listen to me. We say this all the time. Practice does not make perfect. Practice makes permanent. That's the same thing when we look at God's word. We've got to understand it the way it is and repeat the process and get exposed to it in order to have our worldview be shaped. This is why the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10, and you can look at this on your screen, 10 verse 24 and 25. He says this, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Why was the, why was the author of Hebrews emphasizing that they meet together regularly? To encourage them and to, to see these things happen even all the more as you see the day drawing near. But I want to help you see what I think it actually is talking about. It's so that your worldview gets shaped by the things you hear that come from God's word, from being together, fellowship and study and all of those things. He was emphasizing that because, and this is why parents and grandparents, you'll hear me say emphasize church attendance. Why? Because we need warm bodies in the room. No, it's nice to have a full crowd, but that's not what this is about. The reason is your children and your grandchildren need their mind shaped by the word of God and the people of God. 
They need their worldview developed. And sometimes that can happen on the soccer field. But when that soccer coach says something that's inappropriate for their little ears because he's upset at a ref, that's a different shaping of the worldview than the worldview they can get when they're here at Celebrate Church. Amen? Amen. So be prepared over the next few weeks to have your worldview examined. We're going to talk about uh, humanity. We're going to talk about God's view of the dignity of human life. We're going to talk about big things like euthanasia. We'll talk about all sorts of stuff and help us shape our understanding. And you might sit here today and say, well, pastor, I definitely have my thoughts on that already. Mama taught me that's not good. I'm not going to do that. Well, I want to give you the resource material to help you further your understanding, but also be ready and prepared to be able to defend what you believe. Because knowing what you believe and being able to defend it are two different things. So I want to help you, and I believe this is by the Holy Spirit's work that he wants to help us work through these topics. Um, And I would say this, throughout this entire series, I want you to always submit yourself to God's truth over man's tradition. How many of you were raised Baptist? How many of you have ever been to a Catholic church? How many of you have ever been to a Presbyterian or Episcopalian church? Okay, so there's a wide variety of man's traditions in this room and the things that have shaped us. But what I want to encourage you to do is actually look at God's truth and understand that it always should trump man's traditions. Amen? Amen? Speaking of God's word, that's the topic for today. The title of the message is this, let the Bible be what it is. You say, well, pastor, okay, I get it. Let the Bible be what it is. But here's the thing. Some of you who are believers and have been believers and even went to Sunday school faithfully as children still have questions unanswered about the Bible. And when a friend of yours or an acquaintance says, oh, I heard there's a bunch of edits to the Bible and and you can't really trust that. Well, you might not know what to say and how to defend that view. So I want to help you today understand really what the Bible is and think about it with common sense and logic, but also from a biblical perspective. We'll answer the questions like, is it true? Is it really God's word? How can it be trusted? So a short history first. The Bible, how many books does it have in it? Somebody shout it out. Don't put it on the screen. Okay, a couple of you said 66. Okay, you get a dollar. No, you get a chocolate bar. I don't, I don't know what to... Chocolate bar? Okay, that sounds good. You get, <laughs> you get a prize. See Miss Julie after service, and she'll give you a prize. All right, Miss Kathy, you can put that on the screen. God's Word is 66 books. It's written by 40 authors, and it spans a timeline of 1,500 years. And can I just tell you, it says the same thing all the way through. 40 different individuals. There may be 40 of us in this room today. None of us have the same experience. Some of us don't even have similar experience. So 66 books written by 40 authors over 1,500 years of time. The Jews accepted the Old Testament books that you have in your Bible today as the word of God centuries before Jesus was ever born. 
then Jesus affirms their divine origin of those books because he ends up quoting from many of them during his time on earth in the three years that he taught and ministered. After his death, his apostles and those who were his followers, trusted uh, followers, they began teaching and writing on the Christian faith. There's one that we talk about all the time, like the Apostle Paul, who references, listen, the reason why you had Passover in the Old Testament is because Jesus has become the Passover lamb, the sacrifice once and for all for you. So he's putting the connection together, but then there comes a problem. There are some weirdos, (laughs) don't look at your neighbor, there are some weirdos that infiltrate the body of Christ in the early days of its infancy and start talking all kinds of weird stuff. So at some point, those who were trusted had to come together and say, does this match what we believe is the word of God? Okay, this doesn't match what we believe is the word of God. And the way they did this was by two basic tests. And I'm going to tell you what these tests are and you can write them down. The first one was the test of the apostle. So they wanted to know the authorship. They wanted to know, does this say it was written by Paul? If it doesn't, and if you were paying attention just a few minutes ago when I referenced Hebrews, you noticed I didn't give you a name. I'm not confident, and there are scholars that have talked about it for centuries. It could be the Apostle Paul. It could be someone completely different. It never gives its authorship, but we know that the wording and the content therein is of a divine nature authorized by God. So it's included. So you'll hear me say the author of Hebrews. But the test of the apostle was a very important one. They wanted to know who was it? Was it someone that had seen Jesus literally or had they had experience with him? Paul, the Bible says that Paul had an experience with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. There were others there with him traveling who attested to this fact. So the test of the apostle or the author was very important. And then the other test that these trusted early church leaders looked at was what we could call the test of antiquity. They wanted to see, because they were making these decisions only a few hundred years after Jesus' birth, life, and death and resurrection... They wanted to see, has the church already understood these things to be from God? Do they match up with the Old Testament? All of those different things. So were they recognized as something of a divine authenticity already? That's how we get the 66 books that we currently have. How many of you understand there are other books that were written in the same time period that were not included in our Bible. Okay? I encourage you, research them, read them, look through them. There's all sorts of neat things in there, but they are not in God's Word and they are not divinely authored. We can trust that the putting together of those things represents what God's divine will was. In fact, the New Testament books that you have today in your Bible first appeared in a letter by a bishop in the year 367 AD. If you know anything about the years and the times, it said that Jesus 
was around within the first hundred years A.D. The moment of his birth isn't exactly date zero, but that's a whole other historical thing to talk about. So within 300 years time or 330 years time, there was already a decision that had been made by three church councils, not just brother so-and-so and and brother so-and-so in this church, but whole regions of leadership that came together and said yes to this and no to this. And then the list is shown in a letter by Athanasius, who's the bishop of Alexandria in Egypt in the year 367. What an incredible gift we have in our hands that we call the word of God. I believe and I understand based on my research and study that God's divine will was expressed through the choosing and confirmed in the agreement of those who put these books together and said, yes, these are the right ones. Side note, there's three different languages. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament mostly written in Greek, but some in another language called Aramaic. So then all of those things had to be brought together to be translated into what we now have as an English version of the Bible. So let's talk about how these authors wrote these books. What happened and what didn't happen. It's helpful to remember this, and I want you to really let this sink in, this simple statement. That the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. This is important. It's for our benefit. And yes, God knew that Sandra would read his word 2,000 years after his life, death, and resurrection. But there is no Sandra mentioned in scripture. It's not Sandra chapter 1, verse 1. This is what God spoke directly to Sandra. Okay? She wishes, right? We all wish. The Bible was written for our benefit, but it was written to groups of people in a different time, in a different place, in a different culture. Paul, why does he talk about slaves so much? Why does he talk about being free from bondage? Why? Because everywhere he traveled in the Roman Empire, they had slaves. You say, well, why are there verses in the Bible that talk about slaves um, honoring their masters? How could God approve of that? You've got to look at the cultural context of where they were and understand the depth of these things. Does that make sense to you? So let's talk about these authors and how they um, got to the place of being in the Bible. But just understand that the Bible is written to specific groups of people in these specific times. And I've said it before, and I hope you remember this. Context helps you better understand the content. I've shared the story of the crying child on an airplane and some other passenger getting very, very frustrated and angry. Man, why doesn't that mama quiet that kid down? Well, something tragic happened in their life, and that's why they're on an airplane, because they lost a family member. The the kid is inconsolable. Well, you don't know that unless you have the context Unless you truly understand what's happening. This is, listen to what Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says this about scripture. 
the way we read it from the English Standard Version, which is my preferred one to preach out of and study, says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And there's a purpose behind it in verse 17. That the people of God, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So understand this. Paul writes a letter to another leader in the church named Timothy. He is giving direct advice to Timothy, and he's saying scripture is of a divine nature. It's good for these things, teaching, training, correction, righteousness, so that you can be equipped to do the work God's called you to. Understanding that it was written from Paul to Timothy and knowing that it's divinely authored, helps me understand, wait a second, this is applicable to every believer in the body of Christ. Don't write yourself off. Put your name in there. God says to Katie, Katie, every bit of scripture God put there for your benefit, for your teaching, for your correction, and so that you would be prepared to do every good thing God calls you to do. Do you see what I'm getting at? So, The inspiration and infallibility of scripture is something that a lot of people have some misunderstanding about or misconception. So I'm going to talk about three distinct misconceptions today about inspiration and infallibility. These are big words, okay? Inspiration, that's an easy one. Infallibility means impossible to be wrong in content. Just understand me. Because you will find grammatical errors in the Bible. Any letter you've ever written to a family member or email that you sent, most likely, unless you did word check, spell check, grammar check, had that cool little thing online, Grammarly, that checks all your stuff and highlights what's wrong. You've done something where it has some need for edit. I want you to understand as we go through these misconceptions that you should not have these misconceptions, but there are people who do. Misconception number one is this, that the inspiration of scripture was a paranormal event. Now, when I say the word paranormal, you may think of a scary movie, something moving in a room uh, without anybody moving it in themselves, something that's happening that's just outside of the normal natural realm. And there's this misconception in the body of Christ that the writing of these books was something of a paranormal nature. You may not admit that, but if you really actually had the microphone and told me what your thoughts are before I said anything today of how the Bible came to be, you may think that the Apostle Paul or the prophet Isaiah got up in the morning and were cooking breakfast and then immediately they were zapped and they fell into a trance and they're their hand just started going like this. And then when they came out of it, they, whoa, I can't wait to read what I've written. That, that is sometimes how people think the scripture came to be. And I, I use that as a funny illustration because you need to know that the mind of the author was fully engaged in the writing of scripture. His cultural context matters His life and his upbringing matters. When we read the Proverbs, 
that are given to a young man about honoring his mother, they're words of wisdom that you can apply even if you're not a son and you're a daughter. There are things in the word of God that are there for your benefit that were written by these biblical writers under the inspiration of God, but it was not a paranormal event. The writing of the books and the accounts included in the Bible happened as a providential process. It wasn't a trance, and Paul said, okay, I'm done with chapter one. Okay, now I can have my breakfast. <laughs> it, it, just, it didn't happen like that. It was a providential process that helped the human writers be able to be prepared for this purpose. Understanding and looking at God's word this way does not take away any credit from him. Thinking with your brain doesn't remove the glory of God, right? God gave you a brain and he gave those authors a brain to be able to communicate his word and his eternal truth to us. So, misconception number one, it was not a paranormal event, but a process of providence. Misconception number two is this. There are people who believe it was completely verbally inspired by God. Now, we just said it's not a paranormal thing. They didn't fall into a trance and come to and see, whoo, look at this big, long scroll I wrote. It wasn't like that. But also, you need to understand that God himself was not in the room saying, write this just like this. Don't mess up. I cross your T, dot your I. There's evidence of God speaking his word. Think about it. The burning bush. How many of you have ever heard that story? The burning bush. That's a cool story in the Bible. And it says God's voice spoke. That's incredible. God's voice spoke. Every single page of scripture does not say God's voice spoke to this author to make this happen. So how does inspiration work? It works by the working of the Holy Spirit in the heart, the mind, and the life of the author. I would tell you, even if you tried today to write something that was inspired by God, it would be completely ripped apart <laughs> by everybody who reads it. But God did something special over the course of these, those 1,500 years. And then even in the preservation of the scrolls to be able to get us to the place in the early, mid-1400s where the Gutenberg, Gutenberg Press first made copies of the Bible. So it was not completely verbally inspired by God. This is not logical, and there's no evidence to support that that happened for every sentence and every page and every chapter. In fact, we've talked about this before. You know that it's not by God's divine authorship that we have the dividing of chapters. I was trying to think of the word, the dividing of chapters. No, it was somebody who edited and helped them understand, hey, you know what? I know this is a whole thing letter that got sent out, but let's divide these thoughts here. Okay, this one's about the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, it seems like he stops talking about that here. Okay, let's call this chapter four. 
And then, and they started to move like that. That's how we have what we have today. But the events of the author's life, their family, their education, all these things prepared them to be the people that God chose to be the authors. And this includes those who are called scribes. There were people like there's evidence that you can find in history and in the Bible that the authors didn't always write the words themselves. But they're called the authors. They had somebody who was in the room writing down the message notes like Miss Julie does every Sunday. Hold up your notebook. I hope it's not a grocery list, but that is such a good thing, okay? This is good. It helps her go back and refresh her memory about the message. There's somebody who's writing down, but notice she doesn't have a page that looks like mine. She's written down what's important to her and that what she hears. So you've got to understand there are scribes who are writing these things that are helping. And then there are those who translated from one language to another language. And all of that was authorized by God himself to get us to the place of having this incredible grouping and gathering of 66 books from 40 different individuals over 1,500 years Having said what I've said about it not completely 100% all the way through being verbally inspired by God, there is evidence in many places, in fact, as far as I can see, there are over 400 references to God's voice speaking in just the Old Testament. I was reading this morning in the New Testament of Paul quoting Jesus himself speaking or God himself speaking to Paul when Paul says that I heard the voice after I prayed three times and he said this, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Those letters appear in red in our scripture copy because they're given by the voice of God. This is powerful. So God still speaks and he still speaks to you and I today. He wants to speak to us to help us. But here's what I'll give you as a caution. If he speaks something to you, it's got to be confirmed or line up and be validated by God's word that already exists. We've had some weirdos, not here, in the Christian church um, that have come up with some really wacky stuff that doesn't line up with God's scripture Somebody needs to stop them from infiltrating the church with those thoughts and help them see it's got to line up to what God's established word is already. Amen? So the third misconception is this. There was no editing involved. So there's either, there's two sides of this, okay? Okay. There's a huge amount of people who say, oh my gosh, it was edited so much. How could it ever have been divinely authored or inspired? And then there are those who think, no, 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 it was God himself. He just kind of took possession of the hand and wrote it. Every single word, every single line, there's absolutely no editing. But the problem is, is you can actually see evidence of editing in the Bible you have in your hands. And I'm going to give you this example. Go with me to Ezekiel chapter one. This should not erode your belief in the Bible and its authenticity and its authority. Can I get an amen? Evidence of edits don't invalidate the truth of God's word or the principles therein. But look at what Ezekiel chapter 1, just as an example. Verse 1 says this. 
pay attention. In the 13th year, sorry, see, I said it wrong. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Verse 2. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehochen. Go to verse 3. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi. Buzzy? I don't know. In the land of the Chaldeans by the canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. If you paid attention, it just went in three verses from first person to third person. That, that means there's somebody else who helped. That, and that's okay. It doesn't invalidate the truth of God's word. Because here's the deal. Scholars for the last 2,000 years have been evaluating and criticizing, like in a good way, looking with a very critical eye at the word of God to see that it matches up and lines up. And here's the deal. You might find that some numbers from one book don't really match up to the year and the date in another book. Or you might see there's some discrepancy with grammar. Or you might even see something like Ezekiel where it says, I was, I was, I was was he did in the same three verses but over the last 2000 years not a single scholar of historical copies of the bible has ever been able to invalidate the truth of god's word creation still happened a flood still happened god still saved his people through the red sea and it's written by first hand eyewitnesses they don't know how to describe it necessarily, and you wouldn't either if you were walking through dry ground. They said, I think the wind came from the east and blew the waves up. And then we walked across on dry ground. That stuff is still true regardless of the evidence of small edits here and there. The fact that Jesus was born of a Virgin Mary lived on this earth. None of those truths have been eroded by looking at the editorial process. All of them are still valid and true. Amen? So it's pretty powerful when you think about the fact that Jesus, his birth, his death, his resurrection, all of those things, even his ascension, those things are witnessed by hundreds of people, which today's equivalent would be thousands of people. And they testified to this truth. And then copies were made so that we would be able to even have a copy of it today. So, there were copies made in the room with the prophets and with the authors. And then those copies had to be copied. Because they didn't have a copy machine. Our kids probably don't even know what a copy machine is. They, they definitely don't know what a cassette tape is, but they, they don't know what a fax is, I can tell you that. Some of you don't know what a fax is. I'm showing my age. But they might not know what a copier is. It had to be done by hand. So there's a chance that some little things here and there were changed over time. In fact, there's stuff that's shown up in the Old Testament that was edited after the fact to correct and make sure that the dates lined up by the authors themselves and or those scribes. 
And we see evidence of that. Historically, we see evidence of that. But does that invalidate the power of God's eternal truth? Absolutely not. Just like if you read a book, and my wife is an avid reader. She has no number of the books that she's read, but I'm going to tell you, like, every summer, like, literally, she could read through a book in just a few hours, given no distractions. She loves reading. It's good. She's a teacher. (laughs) She needs to love reading. If you hate reading and you're a teacher, that might not be a good mix. She reads and reads and reads. Some stuff is garbage. That's what she calls it after. And she's like, man, there was no point to that. Ah, I picked it up based on what I thought I read on the back and it wasn't really good. But would she ever just take a book and throw it into the fireplace because she saw a grammatical error? No, those things still happen today. So that doesn't invalidate the work. Can I get a loud amen? Amen. Good job. When we see evidence of editing, this should not cause us to discard or disregard the eternal truth and principles found in God's word. Amen? So let me ask you this. Could God have done it another way? Sure. He, he could have just sat on a mountain and written it all by his own hand. And because he's awesome and supernatural and all-knowing and all-powerful, he could have had his hand do it a million times and have a million copies. He could have preserved it himself and said, nobody touch this, don't you edit this. But here's what he chose to do. This gives me hope. He chose to use imperfect people in the process. And he still chooses to do that very same thing today. He chooses imperfect people like you and I to accomplish his purpose. Your pastor isn't perfect, but I have the duty of sharing God's word. I have that calling and responsibility on my life. You are not a perfect mother, father, grandparent, whatever the case may be, but God has given you that responsibility in this life. So thank God that he still today uses imperfect people like you and I, amen? So we really need to let the Bible be what it is. We just do. We need to have a supernatural view of it, but also use our brain. Here's what I want you to do when you think about the Bible. I want you to accept it as God's divine word. His revelation of himself to humanity. It was for a special group of people at first, and then it expanded from there. So now we say to all humanity. It is correct in all of its concepts and principles. There's no grammatical error when it says, honor your father and mother. There's no grammatical error when it says, be faithful to your spouse. There's no grammatical error when it says, do not gossip, don't commit adultery. Like there's no, so the concepts and the principles are correct, and it is the authoritative rule for my faith and my conduct as a believer. The world wants to push its values in on me. It wants to make me think that it's okay to do certain things certain ways. And we'll talk about those things when kids are not in the room. It, it really does influence every aspect, the worldview that's around us, and it's always encroaching. So when we look at the Bible, let it be what it actually is, 
God's divine word, his revelation of himself to us, humanity, correcting all of its concepts and principles and the authoritative rule of faith and conduct. If I've heard my kids groan or grumble a few times, I've heard them do it a million times. When my wife and I are sitting at the table and they come up with some wackadoo question and we'll have an answer that says, well, you know, the Bible says that we should love our enemy. (sighs) There's like, why does it always come back to the Bible? You say, pastor, you should raise your kids better. They're pastor's kids. They shouldn't say things like that. They do because they're just like your kids. (laughs) Okay. They get tired of it from time to time. They don't understand the importance of it. It goes in one ear and out the other. That's why we've got to repeat it and repeat it. We're dealing with one of our children right now. The enemy has a stranglehold on her thought life. And we're believing to take authority over that in the name of Jesus so that she is free. So what did I text her this morning? A few Bible verses that say, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I tell her, little girl, your thought life is under your control. God says he will keep you in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. Stop thinking about it and start thinking about him. You've got to. It's the rule of our faith and how we're supposed to treat each other's each other. I want to give you a few practical applications real quick. We'll race through them. Number one, cherry picking or roulette are not good methods for spiritual growth. What is cherry picking? It's picking the best fruit. Roulette, it's a game that's played. You literally throw a ball into a spinning circle and see where it lands. You're not supposed to do that with God's word if no one's told you that. And for those, okay, I don't want to get on a tangent. I'm just going to tell you, reading the word of God methodically and in order, like not from Genesis to Revelation, but literally starting in John chapter one today and then tomorrow reading John chapter two is a method of spiritual growth. Miss Christine, can you pull that down just a tiny bit? That's the method for spiritual growth. If you're short on time, I understand. But the whole verse a day, that doesn't keep the devil away. But a chapter a day may. Second thing is this. Bible reading is not Bible study. Examine it. Now, this is not supposed to be a daunting task. I don't want to overwhelm you today and you walk away and go, great, pastor said there's three languages. Now I got to go look up what Hebrew and Greek is and really understand the fullness of the Bible and Aramaic. No, you don't have to do that. You don't have to go that far, but you have to do more than just read. You've heard me preach a series of messages on the churches mentioned in Revelation. What do I talk about at the beginning of those messages? The historical context of the city known as Corinth, known as Thessalonica, talking about what they did there. It influences and informs what I'm understanding to be read. You don't have to be an ancient history buff to get a grasp on the context. You can just research the people or the place or the time. Do a little something bigger. There's this big word called commentary. You can look up a commentary on Romans chapter 1 and see what some scholar says about every verse. It's a powerful tool. Choose the right one. Your pastor can help you do that. 
Number three is this. Don't filter the Bible through your established belief system. You're supposed to let the Bible inform you of what to believe. There are some, there are some thoughts out there. I'll just use the one example of the rapture. I use this in um, starting point. There are people in this very room today, even in our fellowship, we have a statement of belief. There are people who would say, before the tribulation and the end comes where all the devastation happens, Jesus is coming and he's going to rescue his church. And they point to two or three places in scripture that prove that. The problem is, the next group of people can point to two or three verses of scripture that seem to say that, you know what? God has, he allowed the Israelites to suffer in slavery. I think he's going to, he's going to let us go through a little bit of hardship. He's going to weed us out and see who's lasting, whose real faith is in him. And here are the verses to show he's not coming back for his church until then. And then there's this whole other group that says, God's going to let us endure it all. Because that's the only way that we can really see who is a, a true believer. And here are the verses to prove it. So we can then look through the Bible to find verses to back up our beliefs. But that's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to do it in reverse. We're supposed to read the Bible and let it filter us. Let it filter us. And that's about all the conduct of your life. There are people that believe different things about how you should behave as a believer. They believe differently in Europe than they do here. That's okay. But you've got to let the Bible filter you. Don't let it filter or don't look at it through the lens of your background or your tradition. Amen? God's word should trump your tradition. No one's theology is perfect. The leaders of my denomination, their theology is not perfect. My theology is not perfect. It should be a work in progress. As we, it, as we get revealed to us the word of God, we should be able to adapt and see it for what it truly is and say, huh, I never really thought about it like that. There's one challenge I give to my friends who are in a different denomination about the work of the Holy Spirit. Show me an expiration date. I don't see it. So if you don't see it, then I challenge you to find one. Well, you know what? I haven't found one. Well, then he must be still working. That must be true that the word of God says that the Holy Spirit is still here and he's with us. Here's three questions to ask when you read and study God's word. This is the last and final slide. Well, besides a verse I'm gonna share. When you're reading God's word and studying it, ask what does this teach me about God? So what do I know about the character of God? If, I, if I'm reading that he rescued the Israelites through the, through the Red Sea, through the sea, what does this tell me about God? He's a rescuer. He comes through. Somebody say that. He comes through. Our God is a God of possible. He's a God who makes a way, the Bible says, where there seems to not be a way. Over a million people standing at the river bank or the edge of the sea and saying, God, what are we going to do? And God says, step in it and go. Wow. He's a rescuer. That's what it tells me. What does this mean to the original audience? What kind of faith building did that, did happen, happened that day in the lives of grandma 
and grandchild and great-grandchild who were hustling through that dry riverbed for generations. They'd never, they would never see something that miraculous again, maybe in their lifetime. So how did it influence them? And then what does this teach me about how I should live? Well, I should just keep on messing up because God always rescues and comes through. No. (laughs) No. I should know that if I'm trusting in Him and living my life in a way that pleases Him, that He will always come through. That God works all things together for the good. God doesn't work things all together for everyone's good. We hear that said all the time. That's not what the Bible says. It says he'll work all things for your good as you love and serve him. So I can't expect him to work all things good for the addict who is doing something they shouldn't be doing and not living a life that pleases God and going in the wrong direction and has no faith. I can't, I can't say that that scripture holds true to them. But what does it teach me about how, how I should live? What is the Bible saying to me? If I were to just simply examine the exodus of the Red Sea and the crossing, I would say that God always comes through for his people. That's a powerful faith builder right there. Look at what 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 says. Paul praises the Thessalonians and he says this. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work.